Okay, let's see if I go live. It works. It will work. It looks like it worked. It says it's streaming live. I think we are live on Facebook and that people are seeing and hearing us. Hmm. Um, let's see maybe we're here maybe this is everyone it says that we're streaming live on Facebook so after a few minutes of technical difficulty it looks like it worked thank you to the full set team uh hello good evening everyone sorry for the delay I am Nandi K. I'm special guest hosting the full set tonight. I'm so excited to be back. Um, Didi is on vacation this week and we love to see it. I hope everyone uh, has donated to Didi's self-care fund uh, while they take this time off. And as usual, I'm super excited. I told you I might be back and I'm happy to fill in. Uh, while Didi is getting some much needed R&R. <clears throat> I'm super excited about our guest today. Lydia XZ Brown is a disability justice advocate, organizer, educator, and attorney, strategist, and writer whose work largely focuses on interpersonal and state violence against the multiply marginalized disabled people living at the intersections of race, class, gender, sexuality, nation, and language. They are policy counsel at the Center for Democracy and Technology, adjunct lecturer in disability studies for Georgetown University's English department, and policy and, advo and advocacy associate at the Altruistic Women and Non-Binary Network. They are also founder and director of the Fund for Community Reparations and for Autistic People of Color's Interdependence, Survival and Empowerment. Most recently, Lydia was named to Gold House Foundation's A100 list of the most impactful Asians in America for 2020. Congratulations. Their work appears in numerous scholarly and community publications, and they've received many awards for their work, including from the Obama White House, the Society for Disability Studies, the American Association of People with Disabilities, the Washington Peace Center, the Disability Policy Consortium, and the National Council on Independent Living. Welcome, Lydia. So happy to have you. Hello. How's it going? Thank you so much for inviting me and for hosting, Nandi. It is great to share this space with you. I am excited for this conversation, but of course, given the awful fuckery of the world we live in right now, I'm overall pretty stressed and exhausted and overwhelmed and you know, like most of us, I am not doing great. And I would be lying if I said otherwise. I'm so glad you said that because I was going to ask you how you've been doing during COVID. How long have you been quarantined in your part of the world? How's it going? Any new hobbies? What have been your quarantine phases? So I have been pretty much in mostly very strict quarantine since about the middle of March. I have now seen a handful of people that I don't live with outdoors with masks on, generally at a pretty far distance. In one case the other day at like a hundred feet away, uh, we couldn't actually really hear each other. So there wasn't much of a point to that particular exchange, but we tried. And during quarantine, I've just been working pretty much in, in the same way as I have beforehand, 
uh, for many of us who are able to do work that it is possible to do virtually, which of course I recognize that in itself is a form of privilege that not all jobs or types of work can be done in a virtual way. But in the category of those of us who are doing that kind of work, you know, many people would have thought, oh, you move online, then you're going to be able to take it easy. Well, it's the opposite. Now there are days where I might have 12 straight hours of Zoom meetings, one after the other that I didn't have before because now that we can't meet in person, people just wanna do everything on Zoom. They wanted to see people's faces and there's so much racism and ableism wrapped up in these expectations of how we show up, of how we engage, of how we do work, where you know, before the quarantine, I would still sometimes find myself working up to 18 hours a day, but that wouldn't be necessarily every day usually I'd work anywhere from like eight to 12 hours a day, which is in itself inhumane and unsustainable. And now just to be able to keep my head above water and in a situation where unfortunately my partner and I have been put in not a great financial situation, even though we're privileged in many ways, we're still struggling in others. And I'm now working sometimes up to 18 hours a day regularly and almost never have the opportunity to take time off because I constantly have to be doing something. And that's been a lot of quarantine. And then of course, like many people who live just in general as disabled, mad, neurodivergent folk, I have been dealing with my own depression and then the pandemic happened and it was like, well, take regular depression and let's add all this extra shit on top of that and make it a thousand million times worse. But one thing that I can say that I have been enjoying is since I'm not traveling as much for advocacy work and I, before the pandemic, I traveled frequently for advocacy work. Now that I'm not doing that, I actually have time to be in my kitchen. So I've been cooking, I've been baking and I love cooking, but normally I have no time to do it. Well, now I don't have a choice but to do it. So I have to. And if you follow me on Instagram at autistic Hoya, A-U-T-I-S-T-I-C-H-O-Y-A, you can look at all of the beautiful pictures of my cooking and my baking because I am a Leo and it shows. Mm. (laughs) We love to see it. I'm a Sagittarius. So that's probably why we just like bonded so well, so easily that fire energy, you know, it just, it just works. So you're cooking. What kind of stuff are you cooking? I love to cook. Um, I've gotten to the point where now I'm tired of cooking. Um, but, but I did go through a huge cooking spirit at the beginning of uh, quarantine. What are your favorite things you're cooking? What are you baking? Are you making sourdough starters? What's the word? So I actually last made a sourdough starter seven years ago. So I was oh, ahead of that trend. You're um, But I haven't made one in quarantine actually, but it's because I cook for both my roommate and I, because I love to cook for other people. And this is where like, you can really see that I've got some Virgo in, in my chart. I love doing this and uh, my roommate doesn't have gluten. So I haven't been actually making sourdough. But my favorite things to cook are things like durawat and ingudai tubs. I make a lot of yamisurawat. I make panang curry, which I love to do. Uh, I've been doing a lot of different Italian dishes. I do arrabbiata. I do um, different kinds of uh, like a bechamel sauce. Like I just, I, I love all these things. Paneer tikka masala, I've made a lot of that. Mm. Last week I did sag paneer. 
basically, for the most part, I make foods that are not bland white people food because bland we white people food it. is sad and disappointing and lacking in everything. <sighs> I, I, there was no, this, we know meme, it. you know, you saw, I don't know if you saw this meme, it was on Facebook of a, someone saying, oh, when you finally organize all your spices alphabetically in five seconds, and there were four containers on this one sad white dude shelf. And I looked at that and I was like, you have four, 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 four spice. What? Because well, I that makes sense, five, right? five shelves or drawers that yeah. are double stacked with spices and herbs yep. and in yeah there's no less than at least eight things going into any particular dish if not many more because I mean, if you only have four spices what are you making i mean well you know white people love salt and pepper only and then so like what else do they use like red pepper flakes and then what else supposed to be exotic very spicy very spicy spicy for them and then what would the fourth one be like italian seasoning or something like maybe maybe. if if even that that's a tragic spice maybe oh it might be parsley parsley which is great with a billion other things that's tragic yeah Yeah, I'm so glad you're making food that has seasoning, you know. I hope that some white people have taken the time to learn how to cook something with seasoning. Yeah, I hope so. How do you think? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. My partner is white and I have been teaching them how to make many more dishes. I have turned them on to cooking tikka masala from scratch and how to make pho. And uh, I've got them on my so they, they're doing masaman curry now and I'm like I am helping you expand into the uh, world with even more flavorful foods that are delicious that are accessible and you can make it and you know they grew you. up eating very flavorful foods but within a very limited palette of Mexican food Italian food and some Chinese food mm-hmm. and now they have been able to experience like more and more foods that the world has to offer and, and that makes me very happy, especially that they're cooking their food and I'm cooking mine. There are a couple of pictures of my partner's food on my Instagram too. So Cute. check that out. Bless you for that. That's truly a service. I hope your partner is very grateful for the knowledge of seasoning that you're imparting on them because some white people will never have the opportunity to get, to get this kind of education. I mean, they grew up, the only thing that they grew up with that was really amazing was their dad made some great pasta sauces. And then their family went to this Mexican restaurant that was owned by a family from Mexico that had specific family recipes. And that's what they grew up with that was full of flavor. Yeah. So they knew. As an adult, they're like, there must be more. And I was like, let me share with you the amazing. I can show you the world. Yeah, for sure. So how do you think that, um, how disabled, how do you think disabled folks are experiencing COVID? And obviously you can only speak for like so many people, but in crises like a pandemic, what are able-bodied people kind of like not thinking about or taking for granted that disabled people aren't able to? Right, so as you know, we as disabled people have 
infinitely diverse and varied experiences, our lived experiences, right. how our body minds work, what manifestations of ableism we deal with and how it affects us. And so, you know, there are so many different things that COVID has made clear for us and for abled people alike. On the one hand, for many abled people, going into quarantine was the first time that they experienced prolonged isolation and deprivation of human contact. And for many disabled people and disabled people who were not otherwise incarcerated, going into quarantine was no different than everyday life because huge numbers of us with all different types of disabilities live our lives in extreme isolation, away from other people, excluded from, erased from, forgotten in our own communities and neighborhoods, because even the communities to which we should belong will write us off as not deserving of care, of affection, of relationships, not being welcomed, not belonging, because we're too burdensome or inconvenient, and we do not often have the support of friendship, of family, either of origin or chosen family in the same ways that non-disabled people often will. And of course, often, right? Because anyone can experience isolation. Anyone can experience disownment. But for many disabled people, because of extreme ableism and inaccess everywhere, from neighborhood spots, to religious communities, to activism, to civic spaces, to public space, it is not possible for us to regularly or consistently access the same public spaces that non-disabled people do. So for many disabled people, going into quarantine was, well, welcome to what the last seven, 10, 20 years of my life have been like. I already live at home all the time and have very little to no human contact. For other disabled people, it was a vindication whether or not we spent most of our time at home or did a lot of work or spent a lot of social time outside of our homes, that for many of us for years, we'd been asking our friends, our jobs, our schools, mm. our organizing communities, we need to be able to do work virtually. We need to be able to do work remotely. We need to have flexible hours. We need to be able to stay at home and communicate from bed, from the couch. I'm on the couch right now. And we've been told for years, you cannot do that because it's inconvenient, because it's not as good as being in person, because it's too hard, because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't trust you. We think you're distracted. We don't think you're really working. We don't think that you're really contributing. And now suddenly when non-disabled people have to do work virtually or do work remotely, now suddenly it's possible. Well, we were telling wow. people all along. And then for others of us still, it's been an opportunity to foster and sustain more socialization and engagement than we've often had because we weren't invited to or it wasn't made possible by those who had the power, the privilege and the resources to do it for us to participate in the same activities in the wow. same spaces as non-disabled people. And now that people are doing yoga online, now that people are doing activities online, gaming, cooking, chatting, watching a movie, spending time with friends, suddenly many disabled people, again, with all different types of disabilities, can now participate because now things are being done in ways that we can. And still for others, the move to doing things online because of the pandemic and because of quarantine has made isolation and inaccess worse. Mm -hmm. 
because disabled people are disproportionately unemployed, underemployed, and precariously employed. We are disproportionately low income, no income. We are disproportionately homeless. And for disabled people who are also black, brown, or native, disabled people who are also immigrants, disabled people who come from generationally impoverished families, the likelihood that we have reliable access to devices that can access things like Zoom or Facebook rooms for hanging out now, or that we have a reliable broadband connection is disproportionately decreased. And so the increased reliance by the entire world to do everything virtually, even including essential government services, for example, has meant that disabled people at the margins of the margins, in many cases, are even more left out and shut out at the same time. And this is all before we even look at what this pandemic has done for our community and done to our community beyond our interactions and our move to doing online and remote programming. We see all across the country that hospitals and even some states have revealed information about medical triage policies that literally decide how to ration medical equipment and medical treatment. In other words, to decide which people's lives are considered worth living and therefore worth saving. And there was a widely publicized case just a couple of months ago out of Texas of a black disabled man, Michael Hickson, who went to the hospital to seek treatment for COVID and was denied treatment because doctors decided that his quality of life was not worth living because he is disabled and therefore they would not provide him treatment and he died. And to be more accurate, let me be very clear of my words, they murdered him. He didn't die passively, they murdered him. And Michael Hickson is not an anomaly. He's simply the person whose name is now at the center of this story. But eugenics policies, which are rooted in white supremacy in settler colonialism and in ableism have never disappeared never disappeared. And disabled people, especially disabled queer and trans and black and brown and native and Asian communities have always already known this because it is our communities that have been consistently singled out and targeted for silencing, for erasure, and for elimination. The idea of eugenics fell out of favor only semantically because that term became so closely associated with the Nazis Third Reich, with the Nazi regime in Germany. But eugenics ideas never disappeared. Never eugenics is just simply taken on different forms, but it continues to be the quote unquote progressive science, how to improve the human race, which really is to say how to improve the productivity and the reproductivity of white, abled, moneyed people, mm -hmm. and how to prevent the rest of us from being able to participate, from being able to exist to live, to breathe in the same ways. And this pandemic has simply laid bare what our communities already knew, that we were already deemed to be expendable and disposable because our body minds were already labeled not valuable, not worthy, broken, defective, disordered. That we were already written off as human refuse. Whoa. I mean, all of that. And I think that we're seeing that kind of reckoning in so many places, but I wanna talk about how you talked about Michael Hickson and how the medical community itself plays a role uh, in what's going on. You talked about how even 
uh, how the medical profession is ableist even during normal times. Can you talk a little bit to our audience about what that looks like? So outside of a pandemic, we already know that even people who aren't disabled uh, have issues in the medical industry. Black women have issues being listened to. Fat people have issues being listened to. So if you talk about people who are disabled, what is that like outside of a pandemic? And how does ableism function in the medical community? Ableism is connected to every single other oppression that exists. Ableism is both necessary for and dependent on every other form of oppression. The ideas that black, brown, indigenous, Asian, and other people of color are inferior to white people to be used either only to be extracted from or exploited as labor capital for white people's wealth building machines, or that we are to be expendable and disposable as unfit to produce, to reproduce and to be reproduced are all ideas about our body minds. Those are ideas rooted in ableism. The idea that women in particular, black and other women of color are somehow necessarily more emotionally prone, incapable of understanding reality, being intelligent, making decisions about their own bodies are all ideas about bodies and minds, bodily and mental capacity. Those are all ideas rooted in ableism. The ideas likewise that fat people, queer people, trans people, asexual people are mentally ill is literally an idea about ableism. And likewise, ableism is itself rooted in white supremacy, rooted in misogyny, rooted in capitalism. And so of course we will see ableism at every turn in the medical industrial complex and the consistent denial of our own knowledge and expertise about our bodies, about our experiences as any marginalized and targeted communities are, whether it is in the denial of adequate quality care, whether it is in the delay of care that leads to increased mortality rates at younger ages from diseases and conditions that are otherwise completely treatable and that do not necessarily have to result in short and lifespans, whether we see it in actually overtly discriminatory decisions, like in Wisconsin years ago, when a doctor who, by the way, has won an award for ethics, deliberately had a young boy with multiple disabilities transferred to his university hospital while having pneumonia for the explicit purpose of refusing to provide him with pneumonia antibiotics and taking him off of that medication and even off of hydration and nutrition just to let him die because better off dead than disabled, that that is commonplace, that organ transplant denials because people are disabled is commonplace, that being that even as a study showed in the United Kingdom, that doctors are seven times more likely to make a rapid life or death decision that is likely to be dangerous and life-threatening if the person they are treating is known to have a developmental disability, those things can all be traced to and are directly connected to all other forms of medical violence, of forced experimentation on Black people, on incarcerated Latino women, on Asian immigrants, on communities of color throughout the United States, on genocide against Boricua people, of Native people in the mainland United States, of how the United States deploys weapons that cause mass disablement by funding violence by the Israeli military in occupied Palestine, by what we did by dropping napalm in Vietnam, by what we 
we did by dropping nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, by what we've done in our own country, by where we build oil pipelines, into whose land that goes, into which places the highways are constructed, displacing black and brown impoverished families into the neighborhoods that now have the highest rates of air pollution and of cockroach infestation because of deliberate neglect by slumlords that lead to increased rates of lifelong respiratory disease. That all of these forms of environmental racism and of deliberate medical neglect and overt medical discrimination are all connected to colonialism, to white supremacy, and to ableism. Wow. So we talked a little bit before we went live and I told you I'm very new to uh, disability justice. Um, Like I watched a documentary and I was like, wow, I'm really missing that. So I want to thank you so much because it's easy to draw connections and say, oh, these things are all connected. But I never even thought of ableism in that way. So I really want to thank you so much for that explanation about deliberate neglect and like intentional situations, because you're right, it is all connected. And that body, that mind body connection, that capacity, that that was really eye opening for me. I wanted to ask you, so one, so first I want to ask how did you get started in your work? And then I want to ask you about, uh, after that, you talked about better being disabled or dead. And I would love to to talk to you about the kind of judgments that people make on disabled people. Because we see a lot of these things like anti-vaxxers, oh, your kid will be autistic. And it's like, you know, there's nothing wrong with being autistic. It happens. So we see ableism show up in that way. So I'd love to kind of talk a little bit more about that better disabled than dead and how people kind of assume quality of life. But people first, say better dead than disabled. That's uh, what people say. Mm-hmm. So horrible. But first, how did you get started in this work? For many of us who do activism, organizing, and advocacy, we do the work because we have to because we can't rely on people with more power and privilege and resources to come save us. And in fact, if we tried to do that, they would end up causing significantly more harm than they would be helping. And for many of us, it is that we feel we have no choice because we are fighting for our survival and for the survival of others in our communities and in the communities that we work to try to be in solidarity with. And for me, it was no different. I've believed from the time I was a kid that we all have a very important and necessary moral obligation to use whatever resources we do have, recognizing that resources are fluid and they change from moment to moment. But whatever resources we do have, we have an obligation to use those resources to challenge and fight injustice and violence and to attempt to bring about and sustain a world in the mold of the one we want to live in. A world that for many of us is one in which each person can actually live freely and authentically and safely as we define our own safety in self-determined lives and in communities where we belong and where we want to belong and where not one single person is considered expendable or disposable, but every person is deserving of care, of access, of support, of rest, of joy, of love. 
That is, and to think that's a radical idea, to think that that is considered radical. So you offer all kinds of things in your work. You write legislation, you conduct workshops. What is all, what are all the things that you do? How do you, like how in all the ways are you active? It's really hard to answer that question. Um, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I mean, you know, when we were reading your bio earlier, you know, you're a, you're an attorney. Can you please tell us about being an attorney? That was just one of the six things that was (laughs) listed as things you do. Tell us a little bit about that. I've only been a lawyer very recently. I escaped hell. I mean, graduated from law school, but (laughs) escaped from hell is more accurate. Uh, Two years ago, 2018. Congrats. And thank you. It was a massive achievement and also just glad to be done. Glad to be done that. Uh, I was sworn into the bar at the beginning of 2019, which again in itself is just thinking of an entire system that is fundamentally and perhaps irreparably racist, classist, and ableist, the entire legal profession, the way in which people become licensed to practice law, how law operates, what the history of US jurisprudence even is. And for me, that was something I chose to do, not because I believe the law will save us. I've never believed that. I've never thought that. The law is literally the master's tools and part of the master's house, but rather in understanding that having a law license gives me a very specific tool that I can use in conjunction with my organizing work and in support of other directly impacted people's organizing work. And so I went to hell, I I mean law school, (laughs) for that reason, to be able to gain that set of tools to be able to use them. And in the first year that I was out of law school, I did, I had a fellowship in which I was practicing law. Primarily, I was representing disabled students, mostly black and brown (laughs) disabled students. And um, that's not COVID coughing. No. Great. I just drank water too fast coughing. Rumi and I both have OCD (laughs) and everybody can tell. This has been recorded for posterity. Excellent. And... Um, we justify and qualify all of our coughs. That was a too much chili cough or that was oh, a yes. water cough. Yep. Indeed. Yeah, you do. You must, you must be safe. Are we actually COVIDing each other? Important information. <laughs> so uh, during that fellowship, I represented disabled students who were mostly black and brown disabled students mm-hmm. who were all facing some form of criminalization and denial of access from their schools related to being disabled and often disabled and negatively racialized at the same time. Um, That was for a year, I did that work. And afterward, um, I moved into doing policy work with a focus on the nexus of disability and technology policy. And that's what I'm doing now. Um, Yeah, tell us more about that. Sure, so my current project work in my day job, I focus on issues of algorithmic fairness, bias and justice and disability, which is to say, we look at the ways in which algorithmic tools Mm -hmm. make decisions that affect disabled people's lives in ways that reinforce and perpetuate 
systemic and structural ableism. So specifically right now, we're doing a lot of work around government benefits, especially Medicaid and food stamps and social security, and a lot of work around employment discrimination. So how different automated tools are used by private companies or by state governments to make decisions about people's benefits, who gets benefits, how much benefits people get, about who gets hired for jobs, about who gets raises and promotions, or who even gets an interview let alone get hired for a job. And how we know already in many ways and probably not even the full extent that artificial intelligence related algorithms, that algorithms that rely on artificial intelligence discriminate systemically against black mm -hmm. women, for example, or East Asian students applying for jobs or discriminate against trans people who are trying to access healthcare or discover something for a service that will help them in their daily life online. And fewer people are talking about the specific ways in which algorithmic tools impact disabled people and especially disabled people who are multiply marginalized. Because right. as we all know, that those people who live at the intersections of multiple marginalizations will always be the most fucked over yeah. by anything. It is not merely somebody who is black or brown or somebody who is queer or trans or somebody who is disabled who is at the highest risk of being targeted in harmful, dangerous or deadly ways, but people who live at multiple intersections. So if an algorithm is making a decision about whether police should follow up on a warrant or whether police should advocate with their prosecutor's office for you to be released on bail or not, about mm -hmm. whether or not you should be released from prison, whether before the pandemic or during the pandemic because of COVID, well, that's dangerous. If an algorithm makes a decision about which people should be even considered worthy of being interviewed for a job, let alone offered the job, it's also dangerous. Yeah. How you've designed that algorithm, what data it's been trained on, what it is learning to make decisions based off of, yeah. who it decides is considered to be safer, more reliable, more responsible, more knowledgeable, is always going to be informed by the way that racism and ableism and classism and misogyny are already entrenched in society. Yeah, that's so important. I'm in tech myself. I'm not a product manager. And so when people start talking about algorithms and how racist they are and how problematic they are, I'm like, yes, tech is very white. There are no people of color, no black people, no disabled people in tech. So it makes sense that, you know, these algorithms aren't doing what they say they're supposed to do. Look who programmed them. Um, <laughs> Uh, and thank you so much for that work because it's super important. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, earlier, we talked about how uh, most able-bodied people right now are kind of experiencing things like isolation and prolonged uh, distance from, you know, human touch. I know a lot of people in my life personally have really struggled with like no one touching them in so long and they're like wow i didn't realize like how important it is to hug people um can you talk to us a little bit more about kind of things that people misunderstand about neurodiverse people and then specifically one of our favorite watchers who happens to be on vacation this week and also hosts this podcast wants to ask about um, disabilities enhancing care in rela romantic relationships. So how relationship 
dynamics are, can be affected by disabilities. Oh, you're on mute. Whoops, forgot that. <laughs> Let's go back. to the first question uh, yes. you brought up. Essie Smith and Mia Mingus, who are both disability justice writers and thinkers and advocates, have written about skin hunger in the disability context. That is the need for most people to have physical human contact. And that's not necessarily sexual, it can be sexual, but it can also be completely non-sexual contact, but that we need contact with other people to survive. And what that looks like is different from person to person. Some people require in-person contact with people to emotionally survive and to thrive. And other people simply need to know that people they love are available, even if they can easily and happily go months without actual direct contact. But everyone needs some level of contact to survive in some form, to some degree of frequency with certain defined sets of people or specific people. And for disabled people, again, like living with isolation, for many of us, skin hunger is a normal part of life, especially for many physically disabled people, for many people with certain chronic illnesses who may be in bed for large parts of the day, for weeks, for months, or for years, mm -hmm. and for many people with intellectual, developmental, and psych disabilities who are incarcerated in disability institutions, not to mention disabled people who are incarcerated in penal institutions, who are deprived of affectionate, caring, contact, whether literal contact that is physical or, or more metaphorical, other forms of contact. And the need for contact is something that many people do not understand until they are deprived of it. And it's like that with many experiences, people who experience a certain kind of privilege and the privilege of being able to see people you love and care about is just that. We all do not have that privilege for many reasons, because of poverty, because of national borders, because of incarceration, or because of disability. When you don't have that privilege, but you had it before, you suddenly understand what it is that you have lost and can no longer access. And it unfortunately does not engender enough empathy in as many people as you'd like to think. People who are accustomed to power, privilege, and resources, even when suffering a temporary loss, of some of those privileges usually do not use that as a spur or as a reason to then develop a solidarity politic, but instead use it to simply focus in on their own experience of deprivation or of lack without understanding the broader context of what that means in recognizing that there are other people for whom that has been a lifelong deprivation or denial. Um, to speak to the other question that you ask about what disability can mean in the context of a caring relationship and particularly a romantic one. Well, first of all, that's a whole millions of hours long conversation that we could For have. Sure. Well, that and there's everything from the conversation about how all of us live with some form of trauma, interpersonal trauma, collective trauma, historical trauma. And that when people who survive trauma are in relationship with one another, it can be really hard and messy to work with that, not because being a survivor of trauma means that we're inherently broken or toxic, none of that bullshit, but because when we've survived trauma, it changes the ways that we relate to other people. And when multiple people are in a relationship with each other and have survived trauma, it can mean that we have to navigate one another's traumas 
and our own work on our own trauma in the context of that relationship that can make things very difficult, especially when, for example, receiving care is often fraught with trauma. Because for many disabled people, it was our caregivers, parents, siblings, professionals, wow. teachers, doctors who were our first abusers. And so needing and receiving care, which often for many people may be at least in part done by a partner, even if the person has the privilege and the resources to access professionalized care, is can be fraught with tension, can be fraught with trauma dynamics. Then there's whole conversations about sensory needs, about conflicting access needs around communication, around sensory access, around sexual contact for people in sexual relationships for whom that is an important form of intimacy. Yeah. Then there's conversations around what it means to trust people with our experiences when for many of us being open and vulnerable about disabled experiences often is a way for people that are predatory and abusive to take advantage of us and then there's a whole other realm of conversations about how we are often presumed incompetent because we are disabled, especially for people who are psych disabled, who have intellectual developmental disabilities, where there's a presumption that nobody could actually be interested in us romantically or sexually. And if they are, they must be a predator because we're basically incapable of consent, according to this ableist train of thought. And you juxtapose that with the fact that we face astronomical rates of sexual violence of all kinds, as well as specifically intimate partner violence. And there really is a juxtaposition between, on the one hand, we are in fact targeted at horrific rates for sexual violence and for relationship violence. And on the other hand, we often are not believed by other people in our lives or even potential or prospective partners that we actually have agency and autonomy over our sexual and romantic lives, over who we want to be in partnership with. Wow, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's a perfect segue into the next thing I want to ask you because you've actually written about how sex education and violence prevention fails to educate people who are neurodivergent uh, and how, and it kind of creates harmful stereotypes about people just like you said it creates harmful stereotypes that they're incompetent that disabled people don't have their own agency can you talk a little bit about uh, how sex education is failing disabled people and why that is so harmful to the disabled one community thing, many disabled people never get sex education because again, it's assumed, well, you couldn't ever have sex because you're incompetent basically, and or nobody would ever actually want you. So we're just, they're just not gonna get sex education. Or for other disabled people, it's you'll get sex education, but it's all in the form of safety because we assume that the only sexual contact you'll ever have is through sexual violence. And you're never going to have consensual sexual contact, so why bother? Or if we are talked to about consensual sexual contact, firstly, it's almost certainly guaranteed to be extremely heterosexual centric, cisgender centric, presume that everyone is straight and cis, and often done in this very paternalistic way. Like I remember a sexuality romance class that I went to meant for autistic teenagers, where again, teenagers and young adults, so it was 16 to 22 year old people in this class, right, 16 to 22 year olds. And the teacher was saying to us, going to talk about green light relationships, yellow light relationships, and red light relationships. And I was like, did, did we just turn three years old? What, what happened? 
do you think we're three? What is going on here? I don't comprehend, but I don't like it. And, you know, I didn't even get the worst of it by any means, but many disabled people don't get sex education at all. Or if we do, it's terrible. It's paternalistic. It's condescending. It presumes our incompetence. It reinforces the idea that we will never be able to have or exercise sexual agency or autonomy over our own lives. And this is dangerous both because we are more likely to be targeted Mm -hmm. for sexual violence and sexual abuse throughout our lifetimes. And because we deserve to know, have information about how to make safe, healthy, risk-informed decisions about our own sexual experiences and our lives and our relationships. And when you deprive people of that information in any context, no matter whether the students are disabled or non-disabled, queer or straight, trans or cis, white students or students of color, you are setting them up to make risky and dangerous decisions that are not safe, that do not lead to having the ability to understand how to set boundaries for oneself, how to take informed risks consensually, to know what consent is, how to practice getting and receiving and giving consent. And that is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know if you saw the show on Netflix. Uh, It was set in the UK and it was a dating show for neurodivergent people. Did you see it? <clears throat> I saw this and I have not watched it and I have absolutely no desire to because- I wouldn't suggest it based on just like listening to what you just said about one thing that I did notice about it and what you brought it up here is that it was very cishet assumed and they actually sent one of the girls on a date with a guy. And at the end of the day, she said, you know, I just like girls better. And they didn't even, hadn't even given her any options to meet women at all. Obviously, they probably didn't even ask. Right. Um, and eventually she did go on a date with a girl and it was cool. But when you bring that up, that is, that's something that I think more people think need to think about when you talk about agency because that's such a universal thing to have control over what you do everyone should be able to control their own lives they should have autonomy over what they do or they should have a choice about who they want to give that choice to Mm -hmm. and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh respectability when it comes to uh disabled folks is what do you do you find respectability in a way that disabled folks are expected to act uh I know we've talked about we have mentioned better off dead than disabled but kind of what are the ways that you notice that disabled people are kind of forced to conform just like any marginalized group usually they're expected to act a certain way to fit into society We have all manner of expectations of what a healthy, strong, sane, intelligent person looks like and acts like and talks like. And at every turn, those expectations, which are rooted in ableism and, of course, in misogyny and racism and classism and all other isms, target and harm disabled people. There are folks in the disabled community who call this the insistence on compliance culture, 
There's also excellent discussion by Talila Lewis, who is one of the leading thinkers and writers and advocates in disability justice on how ableism has expectations of our excellence, of our behavior and our compliance that define who is disabled and who isn't disabled, who will be targeted and harmed by ableism or not. Um, what it boils down to are assumptions about what kinds of people's body minds are not just normal and healthy and strong and sane and intelligent, but also which kinds of people's body minds are deemed ideal and desirable. And we are all expected to conform to those modalities. We're expected to produce mouth words, to be able to communicate in fluent speech with no stutters, with no delays, to be able to have our voices sound in a certain register. And then if your voice is off in any way because you have cerebral palsy or because you have a stutter or because you have Down syndrome, or because you have a respiratory disability, or because you have different bone structure due to a congenital particular disability, then suddenly you are deemed to be less intelligent and therefore less worthy and less human. There are certain ways we're expected to move. Walking is treated as ideal. For disabled people who could either move with a scooter or a cane or a wheelchair, or could try to walk on their legs, there's an emphasis on you have to learn to walk because of this presumption that walking is the ideal form of movement. And even if walking is intensely painful for that person, there's still an assistance Well, you should be walking. You should focus on walking. You should force yourself to walk more, get stronger, do more walking, practice that because walking is better. If you are deaf, there is a whole history in the deaf community of insistence on spoken language and of lip reading. Even the lip reading, even at its best, is often only 30% reliable. And just like with many other marginalized communities who have whole languages, sign languages of all types have been targeted for extinction and for literal silencing and erasure because it's not as good as spoken speech. There's an assumption that we have to make eye contact a certain way that we have to move our bodies a certain way, that we have to communicate our emotions in a certain way, that we have to prove our intelligence and our worth through our production and through our achievement, and not just through our production, the way we'll often critique capitalism, but in what it is we're producing, how quickly it is we are producing it, how often we produce it, how long we produce it for, to what end we produce it, for whose benefit and for whose detriment we are producing it, why we are producing it, what it is we are achieving, on what timeline, how fast can you turn in this paper, how soon can you complete this grade or graduate from college or move in a career ladder according right. to these norms, can you prove that you can work a nine to five, can you prove that you can work at least 20 hours a week at some form of labor, manual labor, office labor, pick one, can you prove that you can do it, and if you can't do those things, then you are less worthy and you are less human. If you're not sighted, if you're not hearing, if you're considered insane because you experience psych psychoses, because you hear voices, because you learn at a different speed, because you don't do letters, because you don't do numbers, because you don't do flashing lights, because you don't run, because you don't do the outside, because you don't do artificial lighting, whatever it is that is something that is hard for somebody or that is impossible for somebody, ableism teaches us that that is a marker of that person's defectiveness and inferiority. And and so we are forced and expected as disabled people to somehow magically overcome being disabled. Or if we can't do that, at the very least to hide it. And if we can't do that, then that in itself is used as evidence and justification for our inferiority and for violence done against us, both 
interpersonal violence by caregivers, by parents, by teachers who will restrain and seclude, who will electric shock as punishment disabled people, or at the systemic and structural and societal level, and who hospitals give care to or deny care to, and who is targeted for mass criminalization and mass incarceration, and who is deliberately deprived of health care, of housing, of the basic resources necessary to live, to breathe, to exist. Woo. So let, that was everything. And you said something really, really important about how disabled people constantly have to prove their worth. And I think that the way you just illustrated that shows how much all these struggles are interconnected and the capitalism, right, jumps out. Like your worth is totally based on if you can contribute within society's standards. And like you said, if you cannot, they use that to prove that you're absolutely worthless if you can't overcome. There are, and even just thinking about that dating show I watched, in television and in media, we so often see this narrative of disabled people overcoming. There was a really controversial episode of Queer Eye uh, where they- I heard about it. Yes, where there was a man in a wheelchair. Um, I'm pretty sure he was sh a, sh a shooting victim. He was, uh, he's a paraplegic. His counters were too high. You know, they did all these things, right? To try to help him out. But one thing they did not do, instead of, instead of, helping him or saying we need to make things more accessible there's the example when he goes to the grocery store and he says you know I can only reach certain things so those are the things that I buy because that's all that I can reach at the store and the problem was that they the cooking person Anthony taught him how to make ingredients from the things that he could reach instead of addressing the accessibility issue and it kind of creates this like well if you can do it and he also obviously for tv it's like this narrative of like I'm not disabled I've overcome this I live a normal life and there's that pressure can you talk about how the media plays into that and and why what your feelings are about that what that means right when they say yeah. when people say well i live a normal life too we see this across marginalized communities people in marginalized communities who have the most power and privilege that is the white money degreed gays the white money degreed disabled people whoever it is in any particular community that has the most power and privilege within that community mm -hmm will often appeal to those who have the most power, privilege, and resources by saying, I'm just like you. I'm normal. See, gay people get into committed marriages and live with the white picket fence and the 2.5 kids, too. We participate in the American dream. We fight for America's nationalistic wars, too. Or like whatever it might be, disabled people, especially white disabled people, will be very quick to say, well, we can work, too. So you should respect us because we can have a job which is tying our worth to a definition that is only recognizable under a capitalist definition, which is we get to count as valuable because we proved we were worthy under capitalism rather than I'm a valuable person because I'm a person. And so appealing to that idea of normality 
only works if we accept that status quo that is that oppression as it is will and must remain as it is forever and that is dangerous and it is deadly always for the most marginalized because when we talk about disability in society it is so easy for people to want to jump into the feel good what we call inspiration porn or inspo mm -hmm. yes the stories of, well, look at this disabled person who finished grad school and they now got married. And also they climbed Mount Everest. Like that is so inspiring and heartwarming. Well, here's the reality. We do not exist for your fucking inspiration. Mm -hmm. Disabled people do not exist to make non-disabled people feel the warm and fuzzies, which really just come down to a feeling of you should feel better about your sorry life because, hey, at least you're not disabled, which again reinforces the idea that to be disabled is this awful bad thing that non-disabled people will pat themselves on the back of it because, well, look, those disabled people made the best of their bad situation, mm -hmm. so I really shouldn't complain about anything now because I don't really have anything in my life to complain about. And and here's the thing disability is not this individual private thing that some yeah. people can somehow magically overcome first of all we're not overcoming what our bodies and minds are doing to us which sometimes is distressing being disabled is not rainbows and sunshine there are things about being disabled that are distressing that are painful that are frustrating that are exhausting but largely what we're dealing with is having to overcome people's ableism it is to overcome people's ableism and the hyper capitalist insistence that we focus on individual people gives permission to all of those who have privilege to forget about the role of oppression to exculpate themselves mm -hmm. to absolve themselves of responsibility for our collective complicity in ableist oppression. Because if we think about disability as someone's private issue to overcome, and we can applaud them if they overcome it and they achieve Ooh. something that we recognize under capitalism, we no longer have to take responsibility for all of our part, including us as disabled people, in perpetuating ableism and ableist values. Because ableism is everywhere. Yes, it is. You are preaching, Lydia. I hope people are getting this word tonight because I think that a lot of people in the movement are missed by like this piece about ableism, I feel is not integrated across everywhere and isn't talked about. So I'm so glad that we're talking to you tonight. I want to ask you about one last thing. I want to end the night on a little positive note. Thank you so much for joining us. So right now you are raising money for your tarot deck i am can you that tell us tarot. about it i am creating a full tarot deck and it is in the rider Waite smith tradition okay and it is focused on offerings and wisdom and genius and brilliance of disabled black brown indigenous and asian people of color yes we love and it i am intending to create and bring this art and writing into the world as an opportunity for disabled people, especially disabled people of color, to recognize and witness ourselves, our lives, and our wisdom in healing practice, privately or in community with others, and to bear witness, and as Mia Mingus says, to leave evidence that we existed, that we struggled, that we lived, that we loved, that we cared, that we survived. 
we, and I, I say we a lot, and it's a habit that I should probably break out of eventually, but it's probably because most of the projects I work on are deeply collaborative. Yeah. And this one is primarily something I'm doing on my own, but is still nonetheless collaborative in other ways and that I'm constantly learning from and inspired by other people's work as practitioners of as practitioners of tarot, of cultural workers and artists in disability justice space, as educators, as healers. And so, you know, it is collaborative in that sense. But um, I set an initial goal to raise $8,500 to cover the initial costs mm -hmm. of production, of doing the artwork, of time, and of labor. And we reached that goal amazingly. Oh, and wow. now I'm looking at trying to fund some additional stretch goals to be able to offer at least a little bit of money as a thank you. It might even just be a small amount of money to disabled people of color who I'm be asking in the next couple of months if they would be willing to model for the artwork on some of the cards Amazing. and to be able to fund production and publication of some decks to be gifted to disabled people of color who are impoverished, low income or no income and wouldn't otherwise be able to buy a copy. And also of course, to be able to raise some additional funds for me to support me in the work of creating this deck since any work that I spend on projects outside of my jobs means that it is time that I wouldn't necessarily otherwise be able to earn money, which of course, unfortunately under capitalism, I need and my partner needs right now yeah. uh, in order for us to be able to live and you know, pay for things like, I don't know, groceries, which are nice. And if you want to see all of my beautiful food pictures on Instagram, well, I, I need money to pay for groceries so that I can cook them and then eat them. There is yeah, a cycle there. Um, but yeah. we're doing that now and the campaign is live still. I think we have another nine days left um, in order to try to meet those stretch goals. So excited. We posted the link to uh, the Disability Justice Wisdom Tarot in the comments. We also posted all your PayPal links, your Patreon. If you learn from Lydia tonight like I did, make sure you send Lydia a gift. You know that it will be going towards the work. Make sure you donate to the tarot deck. I'm definitely going to get one. So I'm super excited about it, about getting one and helping you continue to do this work. Thank you so much. Tell us one, uh, tell us where we can find you uh, or where you would like to be found. I can be found best uh, ranting at 4 a.m. on Twitter or in a post-pandemic world, if I'm in your city, I'm probably in an Ethiopian restaurant. I have an entire separate blog that is just a fan blog about Ethiopian food because it is my favorite kind of food on the entire planet. And anywhere you live, I can give you a recommendation for where's the best place to go. Shit you not, I posted this offer on Twitter in March. Someone said, long shot, I'm in this random town in Germany. I was like, ah, closest place to you is this very specific location in Liechtenstein. <laughs> Enjoy. And they were like, what the fuck? So I, I can tell you where to get your amazing Habasha food. And bonus, the vast majority of Ethiopian restaurants are owned by immigrant Ethiopian women. So you'll be supporting a black woman owned business most of the time if you go get Ethiopian food. Amazing. Lydia, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you follow Lydia for all your disability justice world stuff, for your Ethiopian restaurant recommendations and all their food pics on their Instagram. Thank you so much for joining us, Lydia. Have a good night. 
thank you so much for having me, Nandi. It was awesome to talk to you. Thank you. Good night.